Hey everybody, it's back for this uh, second episode of 2018, the Sound of Groove podcast with yours truly, Evan Dobigan, on my uh, page, musicofevansmind.blogspot.com, and of course, exclusively hosted as well uh, by the uh, esteemed, not the public broadcaster, under the podcast section, of course, Sound of Groove podcast, this themed goodness that you're going to hear. This is the second episode of 2018, and also the second episode of a particular theme, that we started a couple months ago, and then I'm finally finishing off here with this particular episode. And this is the second part of a theme I like to call First Name Basis. So these are songs with a first name in it, uh, or discussed about a particular subject matter, um, whether it be protagonist or object of interest or discussion in the song. And it's, uh, you know, I I go back and forth between uh, women and men's names on it. So, for example, you know, if one song has a Rosemary in it, the next song will have David or something like that, you know. So, <clears throat> you kind of get the gist of it right there. And where I'm going to kick it off is with a uh, 1980s British singer with a lot of social consciousness and all kind of, you know, more of a uh, uh, almost Marxist kind of socialist uh, political view guy named Billy Bragg who did a lot of albums with that uh, theme in there. He was always talking about working class Britain and... Uh, you know, uh, championing the rights of the downtrodden and everything in the Thatcher era. And he debuted in the early 80s and slowly built up a big following. Kind of started off real pure folk with just, you know, acoustic guitar performances or electric guitar solo stuff. But there's a particular song that is called Greetings to the New Brunette. Shirley is the subtitle. And it was, he uh, recorded it in 1986. And that was on his album, Talking to the Taxman About Poetry. Or Talking with the Taxman About Poetry. And uh, it was uh, from a, a pretty successful album that kind of vaulted him to a little more fame. He had a very well-received song called Levi Stubbs' Tears on it. And this was the second single from that album. It's got Johnny Marr. Uh, it had Johnny Marr from The Smiths on electric guitar and Christy McCall singing backup. But uh, that's not the version I'll play. This is one that was featured on a 1999 uh, compilation of B-sides and rarities called Reaching to the Converted. And it, re- it gets retitled Shirley here, because originally it was called Greetings to the New Brunette. And it's a more stripped-down kind of version. It's not unplugged, but it's not the big band, jangly pop version that he did in 1986 for uh, this particular composition. So let's get to that one here. Uh, this is Greetings to the New Brunette, well, retitled Shirley from 1999, but of course originally released in 1986 But Billy Bragg. It's the first track of this episode you'll hear, so let's get to it here on the Sound of Groove podcast with yours truly, Evan Dobigan. Billy Bragg, everyone. Shirley, it's quite exciting to be sleeping here in this living Shirley, you're my reason to get out of bed before noon Shirley, you know when we sat out on the fire escape talking Shirley, what did you say about running before we were walking? Sometimes when we're as close as this, it's like we're in a dream. How can you lie there and think of England when you don't even know who's in the team? Surely, sexual politics has left me all of a muddle. Surely, we're joined in the ideological cuddle. Celebrating my love for you with a pint of beer and a new tattoo. 
Shirley from Billy Bragg, a man, uh, native of, I was going to say Manchester, that's not true though, he's uh, from Barking, Essex in England, and uh, yeah, always champion that kind of politics, a little more on the social side of things, whether or not that you know gained him some more fans and repelled others, that didn't matter to him, he was always very passionate uh, and a grassroots activism kind of guy, still is. And he's put out some pretty good records, you know. No matter what you think, these are—he's he, a tremendous songwriter. And he collaborated with Wilco years later on an album called Mermaid Avenue, a fantastic album of reimaginings of poetry that Woody Guthrie wrote when he was, uh, you know, suffering from Huntington's career and could no longer perform and sing like he used to. And his, you know, debilitating health led him to only be able to write that. They—they they set that stuff to music with the permission of Woody's family and everything. And made I think a second part as well. And so Billy's been a part of a lot of great projects, whether his own or others. Anyway, that's a good song to get us kicked off with. How about another one here? Let's go with a male name in the song called Luck of Lucien. A little French, obviously. Now, this is a track, obviously styled to be that way, talking about a French Lothario or Playboy of sorts, by the influential hip-hop group from the late 80s into the 90s, a tribe called Quest. This is one of the more uh, funky cuts off of their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Path of Rhythm came out in 1990 and was really well received. People thought this is so different that, you know, somebody's coming out influencing, uh, trying to influence hip hop into a more jazz side of thing with uh, unorthodox lyrics. It's all alternative kind of stuff, you know, where the production's different and obviously it doesn't just, you know, sort of play to the goofier side of hip hop, the more dance oriented, club oriented side, or even the gangsta side that was starting to really emerge at the end of the 80s. It was something a little more thinking man. You know, along with De La Soul, they were credited as sort of psychedelic hip-hop, but you know, you can, you can pigeonhole them every, every way you want to, and they didn't really see it that way. But a member of their group has gone on to, uh, well, as a solo artist and collaborating, do a lot of influential and great things in Q-Tip. And uh, really, it, uh, it changed the hip-hop world in that people realized they could do something different. They could, you know... Uh, sample stuff that wasn't James Brown, you know what I mean? Or flying the Family Stone. Didn't have to do that. And so slowly but surely, the critics started to recognize it as a fascinating work, you know. And um, they they really meshed and weaved together uh, samples so well. Not in the kind of in-your-face, noisy way that Public Enemy did, but more of like a groove, kind of a little bit like Acid House was in the 90s. So anyway, a lot of great tracks on that particular album, but... 
I'm gonna play this one because it fits in with our theme of uh, first name basis this particular month on the Santa Group podcast, the second of the two that you're gonna get. Obviously, if you heard the first one, then you know where we're going. So let's get right to it. Uh, from 1990, it's a tribe called Quest with Luck of Lucien here on the Santa Groove podcast. <laughs> the tale of the French who prevailed through the Mr. Crazy Rabbits who were always on his tail. Rent ain't on sale, your roomie starts to wail. Get caught with stolen goods, then you will go to jail. If you go to jail, then who will pay the bail? To put you back to France on a ship with a sail. Escargo, Lucy and you eat snails. Hey, yo, Tim, what's wrong with snails? From the Zulu nation from a town called Paris. Yeah. Came to America to find liberty. Uh-huh. Instead of finding pleasure or your family's misery. Mm-hmm. But listen, Lucy, and you have a friend in me. Oh, luck, luck will drive your butt batty. Next time you fix some wheels, make it a caddy. In terms of doing good, I know you wish you really good. But listen, brother man, I really think you can. Succeed with the breed of the brothers who you back. It's the creme de la creme. And you can vouch for that, it'll take a minute, rice. So take my advice. Trust in us, thus you trust in your life. Lucy and Lucy and Lucy and Lucy and you should know. Ready, Lou? This one is for you. Coming from a true blue, fits like a shoe. Come on, start the stare, or come on, tell it, boo. Lucien, I'll leave it up to you. Voulez-vous? Rendez-vous? Coucou? Les poupous. Watch that last, gonna backlash fast. Can you get a grip on the crackhead dip? Sold you a paper bag, guess he saw you coming. VCR from my neck, boom, bumming. Ten dollars, brother, he was humming and strumming. Only had twenty, you was living like you're slumming. Gave him the money, well, I thought that was something. Looking like a kid who was lost in crumming. Don't worry about a thing, I won't get specific. This is a song that is long and prolific. Think of the stuff that I said if you can. Figure it out, compute, understand. No problemo, I'll help you with your demo. If you go to the store for me. Lucian, I'm just kidding. You should know. Okay, so that was 1990's Luck of Lucienne by A Tribe Called Quest. One of the great uh, groundbreaking early 90s acts in hip-hop, and then the way they used samples to create sort of a jazzy groove where uh, everyone else was going for something a little more aggressive, something more loud, you know, 
Um, and maybe something had a more of a political message. They had things to say in their own way. Uh, groups like that. Naughty by Nature was another band in that particular. I mentioned De La Soul, but Naughty by Nature was another one like that. This was kind of around the time that Dr. Dre was developing, of course. But, um, you know, on the West Coast, it was all stuff like you know, NWA. And then the East Coast had it, a version of Gangster with Public Enemy. And sort of, a, or Ice-T was actually also on the West Coast. And then there was sort of a thinking man's intellectual kind of hip-hop, as they might have put it, with De La Soul and Naughty by Nature and A, a Tribe Called Quest. And it's really um, one of maybe the last... Well, I mean, some artists since then have made hip-hop interesting from an artistic standpoint, but depending on where you stand, a lot of the time rap music can, hip-hop can be a little bit um, derivative, sort of like uh, banal, mindless at times. I don't know. They just don't really seem to go for big artistic leaps and uh, attempts. The ones who do tend to, you know, because it's so rare to see, tend to get a little bit overpraised for it, but... You know, someone like Drake, I don't know, whatever. I mean, maybe 20 years from now they'll see him in a better light, but it doesn't, doesn't really stand up to that era of stuff that you're hearing from a guy like, you know, from a band like a Tribe Called Quest. So, just my opinion, but that's what makes them so unique is that they really had an understanding of what was cool music that worked really well within the samples. And then, of course, their rhymes were so different and unconventional, a little more like poetry. So they know something more to something, somebody like, um, you know, uh, Gil Scott Heron, Gil Scott Heron. And uh, artists of that nature that used poetry a lot to uh, get their music across and also had a big, you know, fondness for jazz. Anyhow, I said enough. Let's move on to the next track. It's uh, a little bit different than the last one you heard. This is by Tony Joe White. He was a guy down from the bayou. He grew up there in Louisiana. And later when his uh, success came, you know, he sort of was identified as country at first, but he had a particular hit song that in 1968 he wrote called Poke Salad Annie about how, you know, he knew a girl down south who would always pick that uh, poke salad, uh, which is a name for a plant that was down there that would grow in the wild and take it home and make food with it. Make uh, It was a very uh, <clears throat> cheap and easy food, uh, food source for people that were living in poverty down in the south. Anyway, he had a kind of a strange mix of gator, swamp, kind of Louisiana bayou music along with soul, and it meant the soul that was strong at the time. So Tony Joe White also fooled a lot of people into thinking he was African-American on the way he sounded. And this particular track was popular enough to be covered by Elvis and used in his live act in the late 60s, early 70s. But anyway, let's take a listen to Poke Salad Annie from Tony Joe White on the Sound Group Podcast. been down south too much I'm gonna tell you a little bit about this so that you understand what I'm talking about down there we have a plant that grows out in the woods in the fields looks something like a turnip green everybody calls it poke salad poke salad you snow a girl live down there and she'd go out in the evenings and pick her a mess of it Get home and cook it for supper Cause that's about all they had to eat They did all right Down in Louisiana Where the alligators grow so mean That little dog girl that I swear to the world Made the alligators look tame Poke salad and Everybody said it was 
mean vicious moment. She'd go down by the truck patch And pick her mess of pork salad And carry it home in a toast sack Pork salad, ain't it? The gator's got your granny Chomp, chomp, chomp Everybody said it was a shame Cause her mama was working on changing A wretched, spiteful Straight razor tote moment. <laughs> Lord, I must take my mess up. White, the swampy, great track from 1969 called Poke Salad Annie. And this guy also wrote other pretty well-known songs like Rainy Night in Georgia, which became a huge hit for Brooke, Brooke Benton in 1970. Kind of a career-defining hit for a guy who'd been around since the uh, 50s, in fact. Also, Steve, Steamy Windows and Undercover Agent for the Blues were both hits for Tina Turner late in the 80s. And, um... You know, he used a connection because he was friends with Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, who was producing Tina Turner in those days. Uh, he grew up on a cotton farm near Oak Grove, Louisiana. So, of course, like I said, he came from real down south and come from uh, musical influences that sort of melded in with what a lot of uh, Memphis soul artists, who mostly were black, were singing in those days. So it was uh, it was hard to tell, really, you know, who he was unless you saw him in person. So, kind of that. That's where obviously the dividing line between country and soul music is quite obvious, and that they're very similar. Uh, the way they're written, the songs could be very interchangeable. And um, Tony Joe White never had huge hits after that, but he's always hung around, and he's still going to this day. In fact, 75 years old now, actually, which is pretty incredible. And uh, that probably is his most significant song as a solo artist, and it came off of a album of his that year called Continued. Actually, oh, actually, pardon me, that was where uh, Rainy Night in Georgia came off of. His debut album had Polk Salad Annie, and that was called Black and White, was the name of the album. Anyway, let's move on. Next track after this one, it's called Marcus Garvey. But it's actually about a particular figure, of course. I mean, I can go on and on about the historical relevance of that, of who Marcus Garvey was, but, you know, in short, <laughs> Garvey was a Jamaican born. Proponent of black nationalism in the United States, and uh, pr primarily in Jamaica, where he was from. And he he founded many different movements, particularly the uh, United Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. In the Black Star Line, he was trying to uh, promote the idea of uh, African Americans returning back to the homeland and after slavery had ended. And, you know, he basically was a radical figure that got into the you know, uh, bad books of a lot of... Uh, <laughs> countries for his uh, you know teachings his methods but was really well liked in the Rastafari movement 
they they proclaimed Garvey to be a prophet for his ideas and his beliefs and stuff in terms of Pan-Africanism and uh, what he believes. I mean, what he believes is a little radical, and, you know, that's some people's opinion that it's not, but he believed in the segregation of races and stuff, and uh, that's where uh, a lot of the tension came for him, but he had a lot of followers, nonetheless, who believed that he was on the right path and that he really wanted what was best, and so this is a particular song by a uh, reggae artist uh, who called himself Burning Spear. It's not unlike Alice Cooper, which is a band name and then eventually became the lead singer's persona. Uh, that happened with Burning Spear, which was a group at first, and then just became the uh, stage name for a man named Winston Rodney. Now, Rodney was a proponent of the Rastafari movement, and he uh, was a very big, um, I guess, backer of the Marcus Garvey credo and was a supporter of him and admirer of him, and he even named his third album uh, after Marcus Garvey, and this is the, the title track off that album from 1975, which is on Island Records, a label out of England that was a big promoter of a lot of raggy acts. I mean, they'd already signed up tons of them, including Bob Marley and the Wailers, before this. So, anyway, let's uh, take a listen to this track from Burning Spear from 1975, titled Marcus Garvey. Right here, a little bit of reggae, roots reggae, particularly, on the Sound of Group podcast. <laughs> Cause words come to pass Marcus Gav words come to pass Can't get no food to eat Can't get no money to spend Whoa. Can't get no food to eat Can't get no money to spend And you, hello, come to one call. There was the uh, politically charged Marcus Garvey from 1975 by the group Burning Spear on the Sound of Group podcast. 
a real hardcore slice of roots reggae with uh, something to say about African identity and all that, which I outlined before when I talk about Garvey himself, a figure that had you know passed away years before this album had come out. I think of 1940 he died. So let's move on to another tra- track with a name in it on this first name basis podcast theme episode two on Sound Group Podcast. It's uh, called Ruby Baby. No, so we're talking about a woman's name. Ruby can be a woman's name and stuff, obviously. And it's uh, from the Drifters in 1956, back in the days when Clyde McFadder was their lead singer and was a huge star as a result. And, of course, you know, later on they were revived in a completely different format. Um, the Drifters over the years have basically been just a name recognition only. They haven't had sort of a lineage to connect the old one with the new one so much. You know, the one that had Benny King singing for it was not the same one that had Clyde McFadder, for example. But Lieber and Stoller wrote many of their tracks for the new and old versions. And uh, that being uh, Mike Lieber and Jerry, or Jerry Lieber, pardon me, and Mike Stoller, they were a couple of kids from New York City that uh, got to be friends, loved R&B music, loved uh, blues and stuff, and started writing their own tunes for it and became a hugely successful songwriting and production team, which I've outlined in other episodes. They're frequently occurring. They're, you know, basically legends for what they were able to do in their time. And they wrote this song, which was covered by dozens and dozens of influential artists like Dion and Donald Fagan and so on and so forth. Uh, but the Drifters had the original and one of the more jaunty versions of it in the real sort of doo-wop style of the time in the mid-50s. A bit more up-tempo, not a slow doo-wop one at all, but Basically, uh, you know, it's one of those tried-and-true themed songs about, oh, I, the girl doesn't recognize me, but I love her just the same kind of thing, <laughs> which we've heard a million times over and before and since 1956, actually. So why don't we get to it here, hey? Uh, Lieber and Stoller's classic Ruby Baby from The Drifters. The year was 1956, and here it is on the Sound of Group Podcast. <laughs> Ruby, Ruby, 
there was Ruby Baby, a great early uh, mid-50s song. And, you know, it really evokes sort of stepping into a diner in a time gone by, obviously, right? You know, you think about the 50s at the malt shop and everything. That's one of those things that stands out that makes the decade distinctive. The Drifters had a lot of those, and Lieber and Stoller were obviously, you know, a songwriting and production team that were practically the soundtrack of the decade, the way they churned out hits. I mean, even they sort of saw the writing on the wall with rock and roll and the R&B style and even added strings to their compositions and productions. Like when the Drifters were reformed and Benny King, the young Benny King at the time, was their singer. And then they did There Goes My Baby. They put strings on that, which, you know, Jerry Wexler and other people at Atlantic Records who were more traditional blues lovers thought, this is pop. Then what are you doing? And they, it worked. That was hugely successful. So Lieber and Stoller also were not just, you know, they weren't just cultists. They weren't just um, sort of really endeared to one style and were snobs about it. They understood what was appealing and what was, uh, you know, going to sell to the teenagers, obviously, you know, at any given time. For a while, anyway, because there's only so long that people who are that great can sort of hang on to the cultural milieu. And now I sound really pretentious, obviously, but it's the zeitgeist. Uh, any other words we can think of? No. So basically, you know, it's impossible for someone to hang on that long. Even David Bowie ran into things, and he was the ultimate chameleon, you know, where people said, oh, man, you know, this guy's a washed up or this guy doesn't get it. Even though they've been able to adapt for years before, it's really a challenging game to stay ahead of the curve. Believe me, and eventually you get old enough where even if you're doing that, people look at you and just say, what the hell's going on? This guy's 50-something. I don't care if he thinks hip-hop is cool. I don't buy it. So anyway, moving on from that rant. Another track here on the Santa Groove podcast episode is called Buddy. Now, I brought up Naughty by Nature earlier, and I mentioned sort of a uh, change toward a little more intellectual jazz-influenced sampling from uh, hip-hop groups. And this is one of the best of those, De La Soul. Their debut album, Three Feet High and Rising, was a fantastic work. And it really set people on the air thinking, well, maybe hip-hop can be more artistic. It can be more of an artistic statement. It doesn't have to be all about, you know, just rhyming well. I mean, that's part of it, but a lot of it also is what you layer it over, the texture, the music that goes underneath it. And De La Soul understood that better than most, <laughs> better than almost anyone in their time. And somebody like Kanye or, you know, Jay-Z later owes a huge debt to somebody like or a group like de la soul for what they were able to do and they i mean they were sort of pigeonholed as oh they're psychedelic they're like you know the hippies of hip-hop which they didn't like because they thought you know that's not what we are we're just sort of we're different we're we're uh, you know a little more positive less you know misogynistic and everything like that obviously they're a little more sensitive that way i guess like they knew how to have fun and keep things fresh and cool but they also you know there weren't sticks in the mud either but they also weren't stupid. They weren't, you know, aggressive-minded. So let's hear it now. Here's Buddy from De La Soul, 1989 on with the jungle patrol and this one's about the chaos the knockouts out there who's holding my Hold buddy up. wait a minute now just wait we're gonna talk about buddy on this plate but before we let the herd out the gate make sure all the levels are straight out the jungle the, the jungle, jungle the, the brothers, brothers the brothers de la soul from the soul black medallions no gold hanging out with paws hanging out with mace buddy 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 all in my face fold the lap Jim Browski must wear a cap Just in case the young girl likes to clap Ain't 
for the win, but before I begin, I'll initiate the body with a slap. Now for the next, I'm the cutest from a tribe called Quest. And when I quest for the body, I don't fess. For my Jimmy wants nothing but the best. The best? The best. Let's stick out Jimmy and see what we can catch. Stick him up, stick him up, Jimmy. Next, won't be needed unless Jenny wanna get right to the flesh. I won't lie, I love B-U-D-D-Y Cause I never let it walk on by When it comes to meeting Jenny I seem Very serious Like a big friend Buddy is the act that accrues on the <laughs> list When Jimmy and Jenny start shooting the gift Boy let me get shot, I won't even rip Buddy, buddy Don't you know you make me go nutty I'm so glad that you're not a buddy, buddy Not too skinny and not too chubby Soft like silly buddy, Miss Crabtree I hope that you're not mad at me Cause I told you that it was your butt That was making me ever so horny Jungleistically horny On the dial, my buddy talks to me for a while Plug two is the cue to her tip On the A side or sometimes the flip Never gonna flip this back in Buddy is the butt to my daisy tree uh -huh. And the looter to my do-re-mi And the pleaser to my man plug three Plug three gets all the butt Behind my bush my buddy likes the way that I push And like a champ just knocking on out Never at once selling out Or let loose the juice My buddy helps me to Daylight my soul Keeping Jimmy in total control Without Jimmy I'd be on the road Yeah, get it, get it, get Some good times If we quest from the soul Guess what we'll find A whole lot of fun Lots of fun together Just like kissing cousins Yeah, that's kinda clever Close like bosoms Bosoms stay close If you be my buddy I will boast That we're like Elfa Merce And Lucille McGillicuddy You can be mine And I can be your buddy The best buddy in the evening Alright, there was Buddy From the great De La Soul One of the true cutting-edge hip-hop acts in the late 80s that were sort of, like I said earlier a couple times, pigeonholed as psychedelic rap, psychedelic hip-hop, hippies of hip-hop. And that was just because they kind of had sort of, you know, their outlook at a lot of, you know, their album work, their cover art was a little bit tie-dye, a lot of colors, sort of embraced the 60s ethos a little more, the peace and love thing. But that's just sort of what people thought of them because hip-hop was associated with bravado even by then and sort of being ultra confident ultra loud and in your face and whether you were a goofy novelty act like the fat boys or whether you were you know a braggadocious um, you know alpha male thicker like LL Cool J or Cool Modi that's what people thought of hip-hop but you know they proved there could be something else something a little more deep meaningful poetic talking about life in general and rather rather than sort of being like uh, the jester, the court jester. Just because you're the MC doesn't mean you have to make jokes or, you know, wax uh, funny. You can wax philosophical instead. But anyhow, <clears throat> you get my point, right? Anyway, and De La Soul, a lot of people got their point. They weren't a huge commercial success, but they really made their mark indelibly. And a lot of people who loved them and soaked up what they did, well, they made a lot of money and they made a big success in themselves. So, let's move on to another track here on this First Name Basis Episode 2 podcast. 
episode, <laughs> I suppose. It's uh, a track called Katie Bell Blue from the tragic but deep and uh, tremendous songwriter, Texas country folk singer-songwriter, Towns Van Zant. This is from his last studio album, which came out in 1994, called No Deeper Blue. At the time, he hadn't put on a record in seven years, and, you know, the guy's career was sort of stagnating. His drug and alcohol problems were enormous and often, often got in the way. He was a manic depressive, diagnosed as one, but his life seemed to bounce back and forth between one tragedy to another, and he was sort of um, sporadic at this point in his career, but still had brilliant moments, even on this album. Now, this one he made when he uh, traveled to Ireland, so there were a lot of... Uh, English and British and Irish musicians who helped him out with this particular recording. And um, it's got a lot of his own you know, compositions on it, produced by a man named Philip Donnelly and, of course, um, Towns' wife at the time, Janine Van Zandt, is an executive producer of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, he was very sporadic in the last years of his life because of all the substance problems, as I mentioned, and, uh, you know, selling his songwriting catalog. I mean, the guy had a lot of money in the bank, as it was, from an inheritance, and just sort of drifted around, sort of, you know, uh, having his issues, obviously. But anyway, here's Katie Bell Blue on the Sound of Group podcast. There's no deeper blue in the ocean that lies as deep as the blue of your laughing eyes no sweeter sound than your gentle sigh no heart was ever so pure Katie Bell Blues from Towns Van Zandt in 1994 off his album No Deeper Blue, which is last studio recording, in fact, that he did before his passing on New Year's Day in 1997. After many years, of course, of you know lots of <laughs> abuse that he did to himself, and uh, unfortunate considering his immense talent. But you know, singer-songwriters often tend to be tragic figures like that, and. Uh, Steve Earle once claimed, you know, he was sort of like a predecessor and a huge admirer of Van Zant that uh, he's the greatest songwriter that ever lived, and I'll stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table and say that. Which, you know, year, years later, when he uh, had to live up to that quote, he said, maybe I shouldn't have said 
it quite so grandiose, but I really believe that, you know, he is one of the great songwriters of all time. In fact, Steve did actually an uh, entire album of Towns covers called Towns. <laughs> he even ne uh, named his son Justin Towns Earl. So, you know, let's uh, continue anyway, though, past that with a uh, track that will finalize the second episode of our first name basis sound uh sound of group podcast episode it's called harpo's blues this is a great jazzy singer out of new york named phoebe snow she hit the scene in the mid 70s and um, i always thought that the singer later uh, many years later was sounded like her was sarah mclaughlin she had that kind of uh, a little constricted voice sound but she never had the jazzy sort of you know rhythm that uh, this amazing woman had who unfortunately passed away uh, within this decade I would believe 2011 yes 2011 uh, from after a series of health problems and she had suffered a stroke she had, had so much bad luck personal life wise but she was an amazing interpreter and everything and this is Harpo's Blues off her debut album in 1974 which was a self-titled uh, release it had the great uh, popular hit of hers called Poetry Man on it and, uh, yeah, let's take a listen to this track, one of the standout ones on that album. Here's Harpo's Blues by Phoebe Snow. Back at all this time, and I 
Okay, so there was Harpo's Blues from 1974, sung by the great Phoebe Snow on her debut album. And that is the one we will wrap up this episode with, thus concluding the two-episode theme of First Name Basis for the Sound Group Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it, whether you're listening through musicofevansmind.blogspot.com or notthepublicbroadcaster.com, a great site of culture, politics, sports, news, you name it. And, uh, yeah, well, until the next time when I come up with a new theme and a whole new fresh thing, I bid you adieu. Evan Dobigan signing off from the Sound of Group Podcast. (laughs) 